church, our Lord said, Why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You're listening to Behold the Man with your host, Joe McLean. Hola, buenos dias. Que tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's great to be back with you again this week. We took last week off, but there was a good reason for that, and we'll hopefully get to that at the end of today's show. But today we're going to be talking about the king, the queen, and her son. We're going to dive deep into the readings of the fourth Sunday of the season of Advent. They were powerful indeed, and It was one of those days where I sat there in the pew and listening to the deacon proclaim the gospel and thinking to myself, oh man, I wish I could, I could preach this homily today. I mean, there is gold in them thar hills, you know what I'm saying? So all of that is going to be coming up this, uh, today on Behold the Man. The intro song is Love Has Come by Matt Marr off the album Christmas Child. And as always, you can stop by the website and check out a link to his stuff. But we always begin our shows with a prayer. So let's begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All glory and praise to you, almighty God, forever and ever we come before you. We long, we long for the coming of our Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Child who is the true Son of David to reign on the throne forever. We look forward to the day of our salvation. And so, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit come upon us to fill our hearts full of joy for the season, for the longing that we that we deeply desire in our hearts, to renew in us a right spirit, to take away our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. Make fresh your word to us, Lord. Let your word come upon us and may it 
come alive for us. May it dance in our hearts and in our minds that we might proclaim it with our lips to all the world, that we might shout it from rooftops and mountaintops to all of the world. We pray, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, ever faithful to your promises and ever close to your church, the earth rejoices in hope of the Savior's coming and looks forward with longing to his return at the end of time. Prepare our hearts and remove the sadness that hinders us from the feeling from feeling the joy and hope which his presence will bestow. For he is Lord forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The promise of a child. A mother and a child. These are themes that run throughout salvation history. And they were there present in the readings of the fourth Sunday of the season of Advent. They were there in great richness. And I sat there and I just said, oh, wow, I would love to be able to make these connections. And so for the next, you know, 20 some odd minutes, I'm going to try to make some of these connections in bringing this story of salvation history come to life. How we sought from the very beginning of time, a savior a Messiah, the anointed one, a king, a child to come and redeem us, to redeem all of mankind. And if we were to go way back to the very beginning, we would see this first promise being made there, the promise of a child who will save. Genesis chapter three, verse 15, a mother and her child, quote, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That was the Lord there in the garden, doling out the penance after the first, you know, proto-confession, speaking to the, the serpent, saying that between his seed and the seed of the woman, there will be a vast difference. There will be enmity, nothing in common. It will be her seed that will one day crush the head of the serpent, the seed of that dragon, Satan. So here we see the first image of the woman and the child. This is a beautiful image. It's the proto-good news, the, the first good news, the promise of, of salvation. And it comes by way of a queen mother and her child. Oh yes, a queen mother, for Adam was king in the garden, in his court, and his wife Eve was his queen. And she was the queen mother of the child that would come. It's a beautiful image. Now we move on to a promise of a king whose house will stand forever, whose lineage will inherit the throne for all generations, for all time. And it will never depart from him. And the son of this king will be called the son of God. We read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Quote, Now when the king dwelt in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies round about. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go, and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me? A house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house since that day that I brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt to this day, 
but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." I will be his father. He shall be my son. When he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Unquote. That's uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1, all the way through 17. And I tried to emphasize a few points there that were very specific. The fact that the son of David will not only build the temple, build the house for the name of the Lord, for Jerusalem is where the name of the Lord will be proclaimed, but also it is Solomon who is referred to as the Son of God. He's the Son. He says, verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. That's pretty important. That's pretty specific. That's pretty, um, it's, it's a nugget you can't just pass up. I mean, how many men in the Bible are referred to as the Son of God? We think of the Son of God, we think immediately of Jesus, but he wasn't the first one. In fact, it was Solomon who's referred to as the Son of God. Jesus truly is the Son of God, God himself. But Solomon was the prototype, the foreshadowing of the perfection that we find in Christ. And so here in this prophecy of Nathan to David, the king, the, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christos, we see the coming Christ who will in fact reign forever. But this to the people there in David's time was very, very important for they knew that there would always be a son of David on the throne. This was peace. This was assurance. This was like insurance, you know, that even though they're surrounded by enemies, they know that it will be a son of David, the beloved David, who will sit on the throne. 
Now we move on to the promise of the King Messiah child who will occupy the throne of David. But if we, as we skip forward from David several generations, we come to yet another king, a son of David, Ahaz. Now Ahaz was king and he was surrounded by his enemies. Assyria and Israel was coming down to destroy him and they surrounded Jerusalem and he started to fear that he would be the last of the sons of David to sit on the throne. He feared that the promise God had made through Nathan would be broken for he would be killed, his family slaughtered, his kingdom destroyed. And so God sent Isaiah the prophet to bring a word to this king. We find this in Isaiah chapter 7, starting in verse 10. Quote, Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you should weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since that day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Unquote. This is one of the readings of the fourth Sunday of the season of Advent. This prophecy of Isaiah of a, a young woman, some Translations say, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Now, to Ahaz, this had a very specific meaning. To Ahaz, this meant hope. Again, this is insurance to him. For even if he were to be killed, he knows now that a woman shall conceive and bear a son. And that son shall sit on the throne of David, that Ahaz will not be the last in the line of kings, the last in the line of the house of David, that no, there will be another. This is hope for the people. But we'll see how this prophecy has a twofold fulfillment, as does most prophecy found in the Old Testament. There is an immediate fulfillment, and then there's one still to come. And so this applies here as well. But here, it's very important that we realize that this hope, this promise for a king to sit on the throne of David is very real in the lives of the people of the Jews. Because we fast forward to 597 BC and we see the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. We see how the people are taken away in chains the, the, arist the, the aristocracy are taken, taken away in chains to Babylon, Daniel being one of them. But the king is taken away and really never heard of again. We can read about um, the, the, sort of the, the foreboding uh, coming of this big event in Jeremiah chapter 13. 
This is about the fall of the kings of Judah. The sons of David are taken off in 597 BC. Jeremiah 13, starting in verse 15, quote, Hear and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. And while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Say to the king and the queen mother, Take a lowly seat, for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. The cities of the Negev are shut up, with none to open them. All Judah is taken into exile, wholly taken into exile. Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given you, your beautiful flock? Unquote. Notice how the prophecy is to not only the king, but the king's mother, the queen mother, the Gibirah, as we call it. And I'll try to get into that more in detail here in a minute. But it's very important that you notice that, that here with the fall of Jerusalem, the king's taken off. So is the queen mother taken off, gone. Their crown falls and the flock that they are given to manage, to shepherd, is now gone, taken into exile. It's, it's a very sad story, but this is where despair sets in for the people. For the prophecy that was told by Nathan to David seems broken now. Where are the kings? They come back from exile some 70 years later to rebuild their temple. No longer would it be as glorious as the temple Solomon built. Now it's just a, a shadow of what was before. Now they have no Davidic king to sit on their throne until, I mean, again, this is about 600 years goes by when Jesus comes on the scene. This is when we see the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies. This is where we see the hope and the longing of the people, for they were in the fourth age. We talked about that on the last show. The, the fourth age was the age of the Messiah, according to Daniel's prophecy. This is when the, the son of David will come back to sit on the throne. This is when it will, he will perpetually um, sit on this throne forever. And all these foreign invaders, they will be evicted. And the kingdom of God will be established. The people of Israel will rule the world. This was the time. All of this pent-up you know, anxiety of the coming Messiah, this is at its fever pitch now when Joseph and Mary are there and they encounter this miraculous moment of an angel bringing the Annunciation, the good news of the coming Christ. We read about in uh, St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, these genealogies. Most of us just skip right past this. I mean, so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. After a while, your head starts to spin, and it just doesn't make a lot of sense, and you have a hard time pronouncing all these words, so you tend to forget it. But I want to point out a couple of things here. If you read St. Matthew, chapter 1, a couple of points that I think are very important. Notice that Jesus is automatically, right out of the gate in verse 1, identified as a son of David. 
already. Boom. He is a son of David and there by default an heir to the throne. Number two, there are only two people in all of that genealogy who are given titles. David is called uh, the king. In verse six, it says, Jesse, the father of David, the king. And, of course, Jesus. In verse 16, we read, uh, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, David, the king. David was anointed by the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. Anointed, okay? He was referred to as the anointed one. Anointed in Hebrew is Meshiach. In Greek, it's Christos. So David, the king, the anointed one, is the first title. And Jesus, the Christ, is the second title, the Christos. Jesus, again, son of David, is heir to the throne. To be king is himself anointed. And we actually see him being anointed by John the Baptist later on. So you can see these links are very, very particular. It's very Davidic. St. Matthew is clearly telling us that Jesus is an heir to the throne. He is to be king. He is the king, Messiah, child to be born, the one prophesied, the one promised, the one we've been all looking and waiting for, right? It gets deeper and better. Now, if you look at the genealogies themselves, they're broken up into three sections. Three sections of 14 generations each. David's name... If you looked at the, the numerical equivalent of his name, Dawid, it equals 14. So in essence, this genealogy is telling a first century Jew, David, David, David. So if there's any doubt about what's going on here, it's now completely quelled. This is obviously a very clear indication to a first century Jew that Jesus is an heir to the Davidic throne. He is the Messiah. He is the one promised. He is the one to come. David, David, David. I mean, as, as 21st century Westerners, we're lost in all of this. This doesn't make a lot of sense to us. To a first century Jew, fireworks are going off. This is like a nuclear explosion. This means something to them. This is the fever pitch, the messianic age that they've been wanting and waiting for, longing for, to kick out all of these foreign invaders, to bring about the coming kingdom of God on earth. This is it. This is the big show, right? Now, again couple of other points. Mary is listed as the mother of Jesus. This is very reminiscent to how the mother of the kings was listed throughout the book of Kings. If you look at 1 Kings 14.21 or 15.9-10 or 22.42 or 2 Kings 12.2 or 14.2 or 15.2, etc., etc., Go to CatholicHack.com, look for the show notes. I'll post some links to some articles and to some charts that'll show you this. But it's, it's quite clear that the mother of the king in the Davidic line was very important. They listed the moms more times than not. I think there was only a few that weren't listed. But the vast majority, they were listed with their sons, with the announcement of their sons ascending to the throne. The Gibbi-Ra is what it was called. The Great Lady or the Queen Mother. This position was a royal position. 
This position was very important. We see this actually when Solomon ascends to the throne, his mother enters into the throne room. What does King Solomon do? He stands up, he bows down to her, has a throne brought to his right hand, and she sits on that throne. She is the Gibirah. She is the queen mother. We see that. But Mary here is listed as the Gibirah, the queen mother in this genealogy, much like all the other Gibirahs in the Davidic dynasty. So it's very important. Now, here's another point. Again, this is big news for first century Jews. Further proof that Jesus is who we claim him to be. The divine king child to come. The son of David. How do we know? Well, just like David's kingdom, he had uh, a son whose mother was Bathsheba, who was the queen mother. And so we now have a, a, a divine son who is called the son of God, who has a queen mother. So again, it all adds up. Now let's look at St. Matthew's account of the Annunciation in chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she bore a son and called his name Jesus." Unquote. Notice Jesus is a lot like, or I'm sorry, Joseph rather, is a lot like the Joseph of the book of Genesis. Both, okay, Joseph with the, the technicolor dream coat there, the coat of many colors. That Joseph's name, or his father's name was Jacob. This Joseph in St. Matthew's Gospel, his father's name is Jacob. We read that from the genealogies. Both Josephs dream dreams, special dreams given by God. Both could interpret them. Both were used to save their families by taking them into Egypt. Okay, is that a coincidence? I'm going to say it's not. I'm going to say that Joseph in the Old Testament was a prototype for the one to come that is now the new Joseph in the New Testament. The other one was a foreshadowing, a promise, a hint, a little flavor, a taste of the perfection that we find in the New Testament. And so this Joseph... He is that much more powerful of an image in salvation history than the older one, right? So we got to bear that in mind. Now, this Joseph, we are told, is a just man, which means he's living in a, a very high uh, level of integrity in the Mosaic Code, the law. All right? He was a man of great integrity. He lived the law. He did what was right. But a lot of folks tend to think of Joseph as more like a Pharisee. Oh, you know, that Mary, she fooled around on me, and now she's uh, conceived, and I don't know where that child's come from, so I'm just going to get rid of her. Now, there's uh, another way of looking at that. How about Joseph being a humble man, thinking that maybe, just maybe, he's not worthy to be the father of the Messiah, 
and doesn't want to, you know, be the guy who ruins it all, right? I mean, it's a lot of pressure being the the, the foster father of the, the promised Messiah, Christ, King, Child. We can read about this, actually, and if you have the Ignatius Study Bible, there's a, a note there on this theory. It's called the Humility Theory, I think it was. It talks about this, how even people like St. Bernard of Clairvaux and Thomas Aquinas held to this theory that Joseph was being humble, which, in my opinion, makes great sense. When we read Luke's Gospel, we see how Mary was very humble. Wouldn't her betrothed husband also be a humble man? I mean... Would you be up for fostering the God incarnate? I'm not sure I would. I think the pressure would be a little too much. But I want you to notice, Isaiah 7 that we read earlier is, is quoted here in verse 23 of St. Matthew's Gospel. St. Joseph and the Virgin Mother were both devout Jews living in this fourth age, waiting for the coming Messiah child. Isaiah 7 would have been fresh on their minds, okay? They would have known this like the back of their hand when they encountered this angel and the miraculous conception of this child. The one who was to be the son of the Most High, Luke 132. The one who was to sit on David's throne, Luke 132. The one who was to reign over the house of Jacob for the father of David in an everlasting kingdom, Luke 133. I mean, does this sound at all familiar like Nathan's words to uh, David in 2 Samuel 7? I mean, doesn't it? Of course it does. So what do we see here? We see how, like Adam and Eve, standing in the garden as the first king and queen, the one who would bear a son to redeem man, like the image of David and Bathsheba standing in the royal court who would bear a son Solomon, who would be called anointed, the son of God, the bridegroom to all the world, so too is Joseph and Mary, the new David and Bathsheba, like Adam and Eve, royalty, whose son would be the perfect fulfillment of all the prophecies, the son of David, who will be the true bridegroom to all mankind, who will sit upon the throne, mightier than David and wiser than Solomon. Mary is Gibi Ra. God bless you. From the Catholic Underground. <laughs>